L'audit de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détail sur Audi.fr. Welcome to Ted Pondage. What's your opinion of the curriculum you teach every day in your classroom? Does it do its job? Do you know what job it is meant to be doing? Do you enjoy teaching that curriculum and do your pupils enjoy being taught it? And what do their parents think? These questions are important, as curriculum design is something schools are increasingly being judged upon. But have they been given the tools to be successful? Curriculum design can be a very messy business with claim and counterclaim about evidence, efficiency and ethics muddying the waters. What help is out there? We are going to try and answer these questions with the help of Mark Priestley, Professor of Education at the University of Stirling and a world-renowned expert on curriculum design. So let's get started. This episode is headlined, How to Build a Curriculum. Mark, hello. Hi. So thank you for joining me today uh, to talk about curriculum. I think the best place to start is if we try and define what curriculum is. And I know you wrote a piece for us last uh, May in our curriculum special, and you explained very eloquently that it's not an easy question to answer. No, it's not an easy question because it's been highly contested for a lot of years. Uh, there's been a, a lot of talk about curriculum now for probably 100 years or more um, around the world, and I don't think anyone's really pinned down a satisfactory definition. Um, my, I suppose my, my problem at the moment is a lot of the current debates, um, and I think particularly in England, are being defined by a very narrow view of curriculum as content. And I think traditionally in the UK, we've, we've t- tended to see curriculum as the content we teach. Um, in many cases, particularly in secondary schools, this gets narrowed further down to the columns which the subjects sit in. Um, and the curriculum is then seen as the subjects we teach. So um, I'd like to see a more expansive view. Now, there have been um, attempts to broaden this out, and some of them aren't very helpful because they broaden it out to mean the curriculum is absolutely everything that happens in schools, which clearly it isn't. So for me, there has to be um, an element of a purpose behind the curriculum. There has to be an element of, um, I suppose, planning and um, intention behind it. Yes, there is such a thing as a hidden curriculum, and um, the hidden curriculum affects very strongly how young people learn. Um, But when we're talking about the curriculum and curriculum development for teachers, uh, for me, the, the best way to approach this is to see the curriculum as social practices. And those social practices occur... Um, at policy level where curriculum artifacts like policies are produced. Uh, They occur uh, at a system level um, through the activities and support and leadership we provide and the infrastructure for curriculum development. And they obviously happen in schools where the curriculum is translated into activity, uh, hopefully purposeful activity to structure, enact and evaluate learning as it goes on. So those uh, curriculum practices would include, um, you know, selection of content, but they would also include pedagogy, assessment, uh, provision, and a whole range of other activities through which education is structured. 
Do you think it's um, possible, uh, I guess, if we look at the curriculum for excellence in Scotland, as a good example, because you, you've commentated on, on that quite a bit. If you have a sort of central curriculum plan, in the, at a school level, how how well translated does that tend to, tend to be? I mean, does the school is the school's role to translate that and create it into something for their context, or is it their job to mimic or or, or comply with that central curriculum idea, if you like? Um, well, that I suppose that depends to some extent on um, the type of curriculum we have. So if we have what's been characterized as a teacher-proof curriculum, then there is an idea of fidelity of implementation underpinning it. Uh, my problem with that is actually it's not possible. You know, research in the 90s in England with the, the original national curriculum showed quite clearly that schools are very adept at um, at uh, mediating curriculum in lots of creative and often quite subversive ways. And the high capacity schools are especially good at doing that. So as re research by Stephen Bull and colleagues, for example, um, Larry Cuban, the American um, educational guru who's written a lot about educational change, talks about schools changing policy as much as policy changes schools. So I think having a teacher-proof curriculum that can be implemented or worse still delivered, which is uh, there's often a lot of um, metaphors around um, product placement and so on, which are very unhelpful. I think that the, these, these sorts of approaches are actually fundamentally flawed because actually they're not possible. So I think we have to take the view that the curriculum will be translated in schools, that there will be uh, an implementation gap, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a good thing. Um, and then that requires us to think about curriculum as something that isn't prescriptive and teacher-proof, but actually provides a framework for action, ideas, resources, etc., which can then be taken by schools as schools make the curriculum in their own settings. And I guess in England, there's a there's a sort of an experiment, if you like, in the sense that Ofsted is is going into schools now and saying you know, tell us about your curriculum, what decisions have you made? And and there's a there's a lot of freedom in that, but there's also a lot of pressure in that. Is is the sort of I mean there is guidance of course about what should be taught based on the national curriculum and, and the exam specifications, but is that degree of sort of show us what you've got, if you like, is that a healthy thing for schools? Well, on one level, it's very welcome that Ofsted have brought curriculum back into the conversation because it's something I think that's disappeared for years. And uh, we're seeing parallel movements to talk about curriculum in Wales, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, etc. as well, and internationally. So having curriculum back on the educational conversation is, is very welcome. We've recently written an editorial called Curriculum Is or Should Be at the Heart of Education. Um, but I think one of the, the issues I have with the Ofsted approach is that it narrows curriculum down to dis discussions largely about content and mm. uh, it separates out the content, the curriculum bit, if you like, from other practices which for me are fundamentally part of curriculum planning. Um, I've seen similar tendencies in Scotland, so there's a lot of talk in the new regional collaboratives, for example, about um, developing the curriculum, but it tends to be set as a separate strand alongside other things, which arguably are very much part of the curriculum, like developing numeracy or developing literacy, as if they're somehow separate from the curriculum. Um, so I'd like to see a much more holistic view of curriculum. In terms of the freedom, um, I mean, again, it's welcome that schools have autonomy in developing the curriculum, but a, an important point here is that autonomy is not the same as agency. You can, you can actually give people lots of autonomy, hand over responsibility, and effectively disable them from exercising any agency at all. 
Um, so this then raises important questions about what curriculum policy actually does and what the regula regulatory frameworks do. Uh, and for me, agency, which is the capacity of, of teachers to act uh, according to principled um, ways to deal with dilemmas and to deal with problems in, in their daily working lives is actually very much dependent on the availability of resources. And those resources can be provided by good regulation. Um, mm -hmm. So this raises very, I think, significant implications about whether we, uh, how we specify the curriculum, how we support curriculum development through the infrastructure we provide, and, and what we expect teachers to do. Is it the equivalent, I guess, of, of putting, casting them off in a boat and saying you can go where you like, but providing them with no engine or, or oars to, to go anywhere with? Absolutely. Yes, good metaphor there. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, um, I mean, the Welsh have talked a lot in their new curriculum about subsidiarity. Um, and this was perhaps I mean, a conversation that was missing in Scotland. Uh, in Scotland, there was a feeling that if the government published um, its curriculum um, through a set of outcomes and then hand it over to schools, schools would get on with it. Um, and what's been missing in Scotland is, is, until recently, the development of the new improvement collaboratives is, is going to address that, I think. But what's been missing is the infrastructure to support curriculum development in schools. And with the best will in the world, you know, you cannot expect every single school to reinvent the wheel. Um, there is a, a space, for example, for the central production of resources, courses, etc. Um, there's certainly a, a place to provide uh, cross-school collaborative structures, you know, um, leadership for those. Uh, and, and policy, I think, needs to prescribe in certain ways. Now, in Wales, I think the, the conversation has been slightly different because they talked about at which level it's appropriate for actors to make particular decisions. At w what level is it appropriate for the government to make decisions? At what level should these decisions be made regionally or locally, etc.? I think, um, I guess, what, going back to what you said before about the curriculum not being on the conversation for so long, have we got a skills gap here as well in the sense that uh, teachers haven't had to have that conversation in this depth for so long that we don't, they don't really know or haven't been trained rather what to do when it comes to curriculum? And, and does that impact the speed of change? I mean, Ofsted has been criticized quite heavily for the speed of this this switch to curriculum intent if you like and other aspects of curriculum inspection is it reasonable that schools could have adapted that quickly um no i don't think it probably is um i mean one of the things that strikes me repeatedly in my travels around schools is that when i meet people who were teaching in the 1980s is that they often have a good understanding of curriculum development principles um if i talk to people who have developed their careers since, say, the mid-90s, um, I see far less evidence of that. And I think what we've seen since the early 90s, at least, in, in across the whole of the UK, is policy which has sought to regulate teachers through outcomes, so outcome regulation, rather than the previous input regulation, um, which, um, in fact, there wasn't a great deal of regulation at all before that. So so what this sort of regulation does is it... it, it um, it, it, can, it constrains people's thinking, it, it constrains innovation, and it also encourages people to think about curriculum planning in terms of satisfying external performance indicators. Um, so in Scotland, we've seen a fair bit of evidence, for example, that curriculum development is about providing evidence through the teaching programs that certain things are being done rather than thinking big about what sort of young person do we want to emerge from an educational process and how do we develop a program which is best going to achieve that. 
So you ultimately get a very piecemeal, fragmented approach driven by um, the need to evidence particular learning outcomes, for example, which, which lose sight of this big picture. Now, in that sort of climate, we then suddenly expect teachers to become um, in charge of curriculum development instead of being told what to do. Um, it's hardly surprising that those teachers will, A, not have the, the, the technical knowledge to do it. Uh, and we're finding this very clearly, for example, in our um, work with head teachers in Scotland. They simply lack the technical knowledge. And secondly, it becomes very risky as well. If you are being uh, judged according to external indicators, and you're suddenly being asked to innovate. Innovation is a, is a risky business, and um, you know you're going to be very cautious about it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, like the curriculum judgment in Ofsted sits alongside the other judgments, and and seen as a separate element, as you said earlier, then you are going to be more risk averse. The you know, and you will probably be. Because of the outcomes, demands, you know, league tables, etc., to, to to take a risk is is to to risk going down that league table and 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 reducing outcomes. And I guess that risk averse nature means we tend to end up in most systems with a with a very similar curriculum across the board. Is that fair? Uh, there's certainly been a lot of homogenisation. I was talking to um, a head teacher who was teaching back in the 80s. He was a chemistry teacher who was talking about um, open plan labs with three classes in them. He was talking about um, team teaching. Um, he was talking about um, uh, long periods, you know, half-day periods in one school he worked in. Those sorts of innovations don't happen now. What we've got is a, a system where there are certain what works um, approaches which everyone does and there's a bit of tinkering around the edges but I, I've seen no bold innovation for example in terms of timetabling in Scotland very few schools have done anything significant with the timetables they just try and slot it into what they do already mm. um, I've, I've heard conversations in Wales saying well this is a great curriculum it's a great idea but ultimately we're still going to be judged on our GCSE results and that's what's going to be uh, driving my practice not the principles of the new curriculum so um, you know, the accountability agenda, and particularly the evaluative use of attainment data, I think is a major barrier to curriculum development. So if you were a school in, in a situation, perhaps an English school is an example, just because of the supposed freedoms Ofsted is providing, what would your first step be when you sit down to plan a curriculum? I mean, what's our first job, if you like? Um, the first job for me is, is um, sense-making. Um, and, and this is something that was very much lacking in Scotland, and I think Wales are starting to do more work to get right. Um, it's interesting that the, the, the country that's always held up, although their PISA results have been slipping, but the country that's always held up has been successful is Finland. Now, Finland um, is a country which puts a lot of resources into um, developing teachers' understandings of new curricular initiatives. Now, that mm -hmm. is particularly about getting people to understand what is different and new about the new curriculum. And that's quite a contrast to Scotland, where uh, the, the overriding message was this is just good practice. Everyone's doing this if they're doing well already. So there's no incentive for people to start to engage and say, what is actually new and different about this, this new approach? Um, now, the corollary of not having a full understanding of the core principles and values and, and purposes of, of a new curriculum is that you then develop practices which are not necessarily fit for purpose. And we've seen in Scotland an awful lot of practices which are basically tinkering. Um, they're basically um, often applying labels of the new policy uh, to existing practices, for example. 
So for me, the very first step of any curriculum development process, whether you're picking it up new with a new policy or whether you're doing an audit at some stage to say, where do we stand in relation to the existing policy? It has to be sense-making around the big ideas of the curriculum because that enables us then to say, is what we're doing fit for purpose? If it's not, what do we need to change? How do we prioritise? And then we take it forward from there. How much is the individual value system of the school integral there? I mean, it, should this be a group of teachers looking at, you know, the base, the core, the core outcome demands of the curriculum and deciding, do you know, do we match these? Yes. Um, what would we, how would we like to get to those outcomes? And we all agree, or should this be, you know, the senior team only deciding this? Should this even be children, uh, the pupils part of this discussion about, you know, what do we value in, and what, where, where do we want to go? Um, I think all of those really. Um, I mean, one one of the one of the things that that's really important about um, taking curriculum policy that's been produced at a national level and translating it and mediating it is actually to work it in along with the local agendas as well. Um, there is no one size fits all. So yes, the, 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 the policy, the national policy may provide the core um, set of big ideas, but they need to be discussed and mediated in relation to what the values of the particular school are, what the needs of the community are, and what actually are the purposes of education in this school should be a, should be a um, if you like, a, a conversation that emerges from that process of engagement. Um, now, that conversation certainly should involve teachers because they're the people who make the curriculum on the ground. And I'm, I'm not a big fan at all of top-down systems. Um, our our um, research suggests very strongly that if you engage teachers, you get far richer experiences. If you don't engage teachers but actually provide them with a package, a product, what people do is they implement that product very uncritically and they often don't understand why they're doing it. Now, AI, AFL was a great example of that. The original pilot work was done by small groups of teachers working in using action research methodologies and developing um, strategies which could be used in classrooms to, um, to, to do formative assessment. As soon as it became a national program, and it's very clear in Scotland as well as England, I think, uh, it became a set of techniques that inspectors were expected to tick off when they go to schools that when observation happens in schools, you're expected to show that you're sharing learning intentions and using traffic lighting, etc. And teachers were then using them very uncritically. And it reminds me very much of a cartoon that I saw um, that shows two teachers shoving a, a, a computer into a turkey, and the caption stuffing the bird. And uh, the, um, the, 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 the speech bubbles say, it doesn't seem to fit very well, no matter the principal says we have no choice. So I think if we don't involve teachers, we get that sort of uncritical product placement. Yes, we should involve children and communities and parents as well. But we also have to bear in mind that children um, don't know what they don't know, that we do train, educate teachers to a high professional level so that they can make decisions like this. And yes, we should certainly take into account what students think and what parents think. But ultimately, it's the professional teachers, I think, who should be making these decisions, not external bodies. And certainly not, as I've seen in Australia, um, schools hiring curriculum consultants to write a curriculum that's then put in place uh, by the teachers with no questions asked. I mean, parents is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I, my, two, my, my two of my children are at school now, and when Ofsted made this move, I, I, I was trying to work out how much attention, I guess, I, I paid to the curriculum. And 
how many questions about curriculum I'd asked at the school. And, and really, I bought into the ethos of the school, not necessarily what was being taught. Is that another reason why schools have to be true to, to the ethos of the, the, you know, the ethos they sell to parents, in effect, when they're building curriculum? Because if they, you know, if they deviate from that, then that's when a parent might begin to notice. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think most parents are particularly interested in the technical details of the curriculum. What they're interested in is that their children are getting well-educated and they're happy at school and they're getting rich experiences. Um, some parents may be interested in, in uh, schools which have very tight discipline uh, programs. Other people might, might see something more permissive that, that doesn't restrict uh, people's creativity. These, these are all decisions parents make when they're choosing the schools, I guess. Um, but I, I don't think most parents would be that interested in the technicalities of the curriculum. And, and certainly I've talked to parents who are absolutely bemused when they get the reports home that they're reporting back against the technical learning outcomes of the curriculum when really all they want to know is, is my child doing well at school? Yeah, I, I recognise that uh, differently. Um, so if, we, if, we've, if we've taken step one, we know what we want to achieve. Let's say, for example, we want to achieve well-rounded um world aware young people that are ready for the world of work and have a decent you know decent chance of success if we then go to stage two which is okay how, what does this look like in a curriculum how much of an influence would you say that the likes of cognitive science research and other other fields of research should have because Ofsted seem to be prioritizing uh, sequential learning, building on knowledge, which are very much from the cog science field of, of research at the moment. They're very trendy, if you like. Is that okay or is that limited or what's your view on it? Well, I'm no expert on cognitive science, but um, I, I would suggest that uh, there is the, these findings are often very contested. Uh, they often present a very linear view of learning. But I think really we I would rather see a, an approach to education that's based in, in values, um, philosophy, uh, and also the needs of communities. So it's not just about learning. It's not just about the psychology. Uh, and yes, these things certainly inform how we should do things. So for me, the starting point has to be purposes. Uh, it is what sort of young person do we want to emerge from a particular stage of education? Uh, mm -hmm. And this takes us back to the likes of John Dewey, um, you know, the, the idea that education is about growth, development. Now, obviously, if we have those sorts of goals, we're not going to ignore things like cognitive science. We're not going to ignore things like um, the sociological um, findings that suggest that schools reproduce um, you know, inequality and so on. But they're not purposes of education. One of the, the things we struggled with a little bit working with Welsh teachers, and we've seen this in Scotland as well, is people tending to see pedagogy as the purpose of education, whether it be a sequential pedagogy based in cognitive science or a, um, a constructivist pedagogy based in dialogue or whatever. The, the, that that it becomes the end of education. Similarly, I talk to teachers who see subjects as the end of education. You know, what is the purpose of education is is to learn history, geography, etc. Um, I, I think that this this misses the point. So really, what we should be saying is a what sort of young person is going to be an educated young person, um, and and that would involve consideration of all sorts of questions of, for example, what knowledge do young people need in order to engage critically and meaningfully with the world. And one of the criticisms of CFE and its ilk has been that it downgrades knowledge and focuses too much on skills, and I would agree with that. 
um, what sort of skills do we need to develop? You know, and, and really, we're talking about a balance between knowledge skills. You know, knowing how and knowing that here. Um, I would I would also suggest that we we need to think about the communities that young people are in. You know, um, a purpose of education is also about developing more cohesive communities and better communities as well. So these these are the the purposes, if you like, the long term goals of education. Once once we're clear on those then we can start doing things like selecting content and pedagogy. And at that point, um, you know, the guiding principles around, you know, taking account of the, um, the, the, the uh, insights from cognitive science or taking account of the need to develop um, uh, um, pedagogy, which is dialogical, because we know from other research, which is often neglected, uh, by the, the advocates of cognitive science, that actually people learn through dialogue. We learn through making sense of the world. We learn through discussing our sense-making with other people and being challenged and all that sort of stuff. So those are the sort of guiding principles, if you like, that sit alongside, but they're not purposes, they're not endpoints. Similarly, subjects, for me, are not purposes. They're, they're not uh, the endpoint, they're the means. A subject is one way of, of organizing content, knowledge, in the curriculum. Uh, other methods, including interdisciplinary working, um, an integrated curriculum are other ways of doing it and, and one of the decisions that schools have to make when they've decided what the purposes of their curriculum are is what is the best way to achieve this and it may be that subjects are in many ways the best way for example to achieve the secondary curriculum but we also know that subjects fragment the curriculum they lead to less lack of connection we also know that that subjects um, uh, teaching leads to gaps. You know, where, for example, do we teach uh, young people sociological and psychological knowledge in the secondary curriculum? It doesn't doesn't tend to happen with the traditional configuration of subjects. So I, I'm not advocating we move away from disciplinary knowledge. I think it's very important, but I am suggesting here that there are better ways of organising um, than we currently have. And you mentioned before this holistic view of curriculum. Do you think at this point we, alongside, okay, we're, we're talking about content okay what content do you want to teach at each stage what is appropriate content and what's the end goal of, of you know what's the i guess year six or, or year 11 what's the end goal of knowledge but also how are we going to teach that does that knowledge match that approach that we want to advocate and does also a factor your staff base in the sense that you know if you if you have a group of teachers that are inclined to want to teach a certain way or very different ways should that influence your curriculum decision rather than rather than forcing them into a particular approach actually um incorporating their their preference yeah i mean i'm 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 not i'm not for um forcing people to teach in particular ways and i, I think that um if you like i don't like to dichotomize this but both sides of the educational argument the trads and the progs uh, we thought they were types of rock music personally, but uh, they seem to be <laughs> labels attached to teachers. Um, both sides of this debate seem to be advocating particular pedagogical approaches, whether it's direct teaching and repetition and rote learning on the one hand or or complete constructivist approaches on the other. Uh, I've always been a fan of an eclectic approach. And, and really the, the core criterion here is fitness for purpose. You know, um, I, I think there is a, a case, for example, for secondary schools to offer lectures. You know, you can take a whole year cohort and put them in, in a lecture theatre or the hall for half an hour and get the best physics teacher in the school who's well known as for, for being able to teach these concepts in a very clear and entertaining way to teach the whole year. 
But that, mm. that, that will only raise the concepts. You need then to, to, to make sense of those. You know, so I, I would certainly be wanting to see um, cooperative group work. Um, one caveat here, and the same with inquiry, is that there's an awful lot of um, uh, talk about uh, cooperative group work and, and inquiry being open-ended and the waste of time and anything goes. I'm a big fan of structure here as well. Um, I don't see the, actually I don't see the point of completely open-ended inquiry or c completely open-ended group work because actually it goes off at a tangent. Ultimately, the purpose of one of the purposes of school is to actually engage with with knowledge and develop knowledge in young people. And um, if we just let young people do that on their own, then we end up with gaps, we end up with misconceptions, and so on. So there is an important role for the teacher even in these approaches, which are seen as anything goes and constructivist by by some critics so if we're rolling a, a curriculum out in a school and we said that like, these are our purposes this is our set of content should we not be dictating the pedagogy in which that content is taught or should we be dictating how parts of that content are delivered and finding the right teachers for the job which seem to be the sort of secondary model you you, you, you sort of described there yeah i would i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't prescribe con um i wouldn't prescribe um methods um mm -hmm. Greatly, I think there's a, there is certainly a need for guidance about what constitutes a broad and balanced pedagogical approach. I certainly think that there is a need for uh, teachers to be educated in a full range of approaches. I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there as well. Um, so, for example, many critics of constructivism, I think, conflate uh, what might be called epistemological constructivism. In other words, that we build knowledge. Uh, the knowledge of the world with pedagogical constructivism, which is much more about individuals making sense of things that they encounter. So the mm -hmm. knowledge, for example, encountered in the curriculum. So um, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. So um, then I think there needs to be good education about pedagogy. But ultimately, really, this is a professional decision for teachers to make. And, and for me, the criterion is, is what I'm doing fit for purpose? You know, uh, we know that the way people learn actually molds the intellect powerfully as as exactly the uh, what we learn molds the intellect powerfully and there needs to be a very balanced approach and this is why we need to think holistically it's not just about populating the curriculum with certain types of content or knowledge or skills it's not just about um leaving um open the question of how we teach it it's it's about professional teachers making active decisions about when it's appropriate to direct directly instruct when it's appropriate to um, to use inquiry or, or cooperative group methods. Um, and similarly with assessment, you know, there are professional decisions made about when is it appropriate for me to build, build in opportunities for assessment as we go through. Um, now, these are decisions made by, by teachers. At a school level and at a system level, we need to do far more to support those. You know, um, if, if we take, for example, um, active forms of pedagogy, they're very difficult in a traditional um, secondary school day because the periods are too short. You know, mm -hmm. so so why do, why are we stuck on this idea of a 45 or a 50 minute period? Um, could we do far more if we had longer periods? It would place demands on people to teach differently, I guess. Um, similarly, uh, if we, we're serious about developing the curriculum across the system, we need to put in place um, support and infrastructure to do that. And I think Wales is, uh, is, is, is moving along the right tracks here. So in Wales, there is um, the new national approach to professional learning, which is, is, has been pulled together, is explicitly linking professional development with curriculum development in, in the sort of um, line that Lawrence Stenhouse suggested years and years ago. 
So um, the, the approach in Wales is encouraging people to develop the curriculum through professional inquiry, which is both a professional learning and a curriculum development methodology. And on content, I mean, the the, the easy option, I, and I'm not criticising teachers here, is that they take the SATs in primary or they take the GCSEs as secondary in England and I guess in Scotland the hires uh, and they work backwards and they say that's our end goal of content how do we get there is that a reasonable way of deciding content or is that a limited way of deciding content or perhaps both I think it's a limited way of deciding content because it it, it removes from the equation the decision about what what people need to know uh, mm. and be able to do in order to become educated um, if so to give you a couple of examples here um, in Scotland in the history curriculum my colleague Joe Smith has been doing some really interesting research he's looked at around 20 schools and what he's found is a, almost a patchwork approach to curriculum to selection of content um, very few schools have a big picture view of history where they'll they'll try and cover a sweep of historical events and and trends and um, and, and phenomena. Instead, what they tend to do is to pick out topics. So uh, typically in Scotland, what he's seen is is they'll do the Scottish Wars of Independence, and then there'll be a big leap forward to the Nazis. Okay, 600 years. Yeah. And um, and what what all the stuff in between, including the, the the vital understanding, I think, for modern democracies of the early modern period, is just completely ignored. Now, when he asked teachers about this, uh, he was given a whole range of, in, of reasons. And, and really what he said was that curriculum content is chosen for instrumental reasons. It's chosen because we have the textbooks. Okay, It's chosen because uh, this is a sexy topic and uh, children like war, so we teach war. Okay. <laughs> He's, 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 he's also told that um, oh, we're teaching this at uh, higher or, or in National 5 and we need to lay the foundations now. And I know from my own daughter's experience at school, she did um, Stalin's Russia three years on the trot. And when I queried it, I was told it was because the basics didn't have to be retaught each year for the next tier of examinations. So these sort of very instrumental um, reasons for choosing content um, are a problem. Now, the other problem, of course, is if we're assessment-driven on this, and there was a fascinating story from New Zealand which has a very similar curriculum to Scotland where they've reduced the, the, the criteria to such a generic level that anything can go. There's no content yeah. specified at all. So what's happened in New Zealand is that people will, will select content uh, and then focus in enormous depth for, for a full year's course. This will be at the equivalent of GCSE, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there, there were schools that were teaching the Vietnam War without mentioning the American involvement at all. Right. right. That's incredible. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The, the reason for that is because the, the assessment, the achievement standard, the assessment criterion used, simply said that students had to analyze the causes and consequences of a historical event. And that meant you could pick a battle, which they had lots of resources to teach it. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, Indochina, 1954, et cetera. And, and just focus in depth on that and no sort of consideration of the wider historical context. Now, for me, this is a problem if you don't drive your decision-making about knowledge content based upon the purposes of education. So if you, if you simply do it on the basis of what's been tested or what resources we have, or and actually in, in all of these cases, the critical question, what knowledge is of most worth, is not being asked. Mm. And I guess in 
a lot of discussions in England now, the the response to content has been well. Of course, we just we just teach the best that's been thought and said, with a insinuation there that that's an agreed sort of level of of renown and and robustness in in that knowledge. And rightly, I think people have questioned whether that sort of hierarchy of of of, of accrued knowledge is, is correct and whether we should be challenging that in schools, but. Do you think that in the same way that schools may sort of toe to the exam specifications that being able to challenge knowledge and establish knowledge and to incorporate that challenge into the curriculum is, is again, a time extensive process and, and a risky process? Yes, it is. Uh, I mean... I mean, for a start, the, the, the phrase, the best of what has been taught and said, that was Matthew Arnold writing 150-odd years ago, uh, is mm. essentially meaningless because um, it doesn't address the question of how do you select from the best of what has been um, yeah. taught and said. Um, that, that, so that, in a sense, that ducks the question. And, and what we're seeing often, and I think this is the problem in England, is that there's a backward-looking approach to knowledge, um, which is we've always taught this. Uh, it's traditionally part of the curriculum. Um, and, I mean, the, the social realist school of thought, I think, to some extent reinforces this. Um, you know, the work of people like Michael Young uh, has been used in this way. I don't know where – I don't think Michael thinks this way. But um, certainly um, th there has been a tendency to say, well, it's in an academic discipline, therefore it's powerful knowledge, therefore we don't have to ask any critical questions. We just select from it and so on. Um, but for me, I think there has to be a forward-looking element as well, and, and uh, this might be criticised for being instrumental, but ultimately I think we have to ask the question, what sort of knowledge do young people need in order to thrive and shape the world? And interestingly, the OECD have started to use language like this very recently as well. So, you know, it's not just about how we equip people to deal with society as is, it's also equipping people to become critically reflective, to be able to to look critically at the society they live in, to understand issues like inequality, um, say, you know, social justice, um, you know, some of the issues around climate change and the politics of climate change, and, and are equipped to actually make a difference. And I think an educated population, uh, in that sense, is better equipped to deal with populist politicians, for example. But I don't think we equip young people through um, what's essentially uh, a look back at what is already we, we have to look to the future as well. And that, that is inherently risky because the accusation is always there that the curriculum is becoming politicised. Um, I know in Scotland there was a lot of nervousness, for example, in, in some areas, some local authorities, about teaching the, around the independence referendum. And some schools held mock referendums and, and, and did work around it. Others just ignored the issue altogether. Hmm. And I guess... The, the history is, is is the main talking point at the moment in terms of how you teach sort of colonialism and and also there's a big movement to decolonize decolonialize rather our, our curriculum and to to make clear for example some of the some of the actions of well, and writing of Winston Churchill for example during the war and you know to give those more broader context to some of these uh, historical figures we 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 in, we sort of teach. Do you think there that that is a a valid way of approaching it? Um, as a former history teacher, and I think I tried to do this in my own teaching, um, I would always seek to encourage young people to be critical about the historical uh, inverted commas facts that they're presented with. 
mm. because, I mean, history is always about interpretation uh, and, and it's easy to airbrush certain things out of history. Um, but on a, on a sort of more practical level, I think the history community in England has been quite vibrant. Um, you know, history is the one subject that actually did resist the, the Michael Gove curriculum uh, proposals and ended up with something better in 2012. Um, mm. And there was, the, and one of the reasons it did that was because there was a very strong tradition in history teaching over the years of disciplinary thinking. So it wasn't just about teaching facts, you know, transmission of culture uncritically. It was actually about using history to understand the past and and uh, how past trajectories lead to the present, etc. Um, now I I don't see that level of criticality in Scotland when I look at history teaching, um, for example. So I I, I, w- I would suggest from my albeit probably out of date and limited knowledge now, and certainly engaging with my colleague Joe at Sterling, who's written a lot about this, is that the the history teaching community in England is actually well equipped to deal with these sorts of questions. Um, But but there there is a broader question of here is at what stage we teach history. Um, You know, again, this this takes us back to the the idea that the, the curriculum can quickly become overcrowded, fragmented and filled with transmission teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm a big fan having worked in New Zealand for a number of years of social studies and I think that we should be teaching younger secondary kids about um, the um, uh, the society they live in and that would include historical knowledge but it doesn't necessarily have to be taught as discrete history um, and I think that if we had a good program of social studies that would actually lead to stronger a stronger basis for history teaching if it's well taught that is um, than we currently have and I guess that's the, that that goes back to your point about thinking about curriculum in a different way, breaking out of that sort of silo that teachers have been brought up in, and that you know there there is a right way of doing it, and we have to keep certain structures in place, and obviously upending those structures and timetables and everything else in the school is is a big move, but. I guess we're at the point, especially in England, where and perhaps coming into Wales, where you might not get that opportunity again to to really transform what we do. Yeah, I mean, there is, a, I think, a very mature debate going on in Wales at the moment about the new curriculum. Um, the new curriculum is promising in lots of ways. It also has, I think, um, the danger of repeating some of the, the mistakes that Scotland's made. Um, so, I'd, 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 yeah, the jury's out on where that's going at the moment. Um, but the, the, the one thing that keeps coming back over and over again, as, as a doubt in my mind, uh, as to whether this is going to work is that ultimately the system has so much inertia in it there are so many barriers in the system to change that ultimately the new curriculum will be watered down uh, it will be ineffective um, it will be distorted uh, because decisions will be made based upon the needs of accountability uh, and and we've seen very clearly over recent years how performative cultures readily develop in schools if certain things are high stakes you know, we've seen in Scotland, for example, um, decisions about what level of, of qualification to put young people into um, dictated by the number of tariff points that the benchmarking tool generates rather than the needs of the young people. Um, mm. And that, that practice of um, what was called fallback has been had to stop put to it now. But, um, uh, you know, we see very readily, and I think this is very evident in England as well, how decisions are being made not for educational reasons, but actually in terms of raising the profile of the school, um, raising examination results, and, and a very narrow measure of performance is dictating these cultures of performativity. 
that takes me to my last question, I think, is is when we've made these content decisions, we have a purpose, we've made our content decision, we know how we want to teach it. How do we know if it's working? How do we how do we assess whether our aims are being met? Uh, and I imagine the answer won't be just you get better GCSE or Scottish higher results. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we this, this is a very tricky business here because um, the, there's a view, I think, generally across the the world now that uh, numbers are everything and that data is about numbers. Um, but one of the things that we're doing with our professional inquiry programs is is helping people develop alternative measures for um, judging whether something has been effective or not, and particularly developing the use of qualitative data. So we, we wouldn't be just solely relying on, on numbers. Um, I think there's still a tendency, for example, um, I'm seeing this very strongly with the um, the new regional collaboratives in Scotland to say, right, so we're, we're bringing in a course here which is going to um, raise the capacity of teachers to develop the curriculum. Um, and then somebody is saying, how do we know it's going to improve numeracy in a year's time? Well, quite simply, we don't. We can't, we can't identify those neat linear chains of causality. But what we can do, I think, is focus on uh, developing good baseline data um, in terms of not only attainment, but also in terms of pupil engagement, for example, how well motivated pupils are, how happy students are in the class. I think it's probably quite a, an interesting one as well. And taken in, in as a whole, then using interventions which develop the curriculum and seeing whether it makes a difference and using professional judgment about that. So it's not just saying, well, it's not made a difference because we haven't seen a rise in numeracy this year. Not saying, but actually what I have got is much more engaged classes. I've got a teacher who's more confident about doing this, uh, etc. So it's a, it's using a range of, of measures, qualitative and quantitative here. And one of the things I would say in here is there is a need for much more research, um, independent research around this. Um, we have, um, I think, badly neglected um, curriculum research in recent years. It's, it's nigh on impossible to get a large grant to do this sort of work. Uh, we've been lucky this year to get a large grant from the Nuffield Foundation to do a two-year project on, on curriculum provision in Scottish secondary schools. But there is very little money around to do this sort of big-scale research. What we often see then is research which is, is very short-term, instrumental, and often quite superficial, which is then used as the basis for making claims about the effectiveness or success of a policy. So much more research needed. And um, ideological, I guess, as well in terms of a lot of that research, because if it's being funded, I imagine there's interested parties funding it sometimes. Yeah, I mean, if the government funds a, a project and gives it to a, um, a, an agency that does a telephone survey of teachers and then tweaks the questions so that it gets back what it wants. I'm, I'm not suggesting there's a conspiracy here, by the way, but I am suggesting that uh, it is very convenient to produce research that supports the policy agenda, and that often happens. Um, I think, that, again, there's quite a contrast with countries like Finland. Um, certainly colleagues I've worked with in Finland have had a very large grant from the Finnish government to not just evaluate the new curriculum, but actually to understand the processes by which the new curriculum is put in place. Now, and it goes back to um, the, the conversations that were had about PISA in 2015 in Scotland. We've seen a big fall in Scotland's PISA performance. Um, and, and some people said it's because of CFE. Well, actually, we don't know that. What we could say, actually, if we had more research evidence, is that CFE might be a good idea on paper, but it's been badly implemented. So it's that level of nuance around process that allows us to understand what's happening. And that's what we currently don't have. 
So I guess the, the big take-homes from this podcast are to, to, if you are looking at your curriculum or you're re- assessing what you've done already, to make sure you have your purpose right, make sure you have made sensible content selections, making sure that pedagogy is in your thinking but not prescribed, and then to be brave. I think that's the main message I take away, that bravery is key here. I mean, how how tough is curriculum change? Yes, exactly, and, and it's not a neat linear process. And a couple of things to add to that. One is is that uh, practitioners need time and space to come together to make sense and to develop. They need resources to support them. So, um, you know, if the system doesn't provide resources, we're, we're going to get people basically saying, I can't do this. And ultimately, the system, and particularly leadership in the system, needs to provide a protective layer for people so that it becomes inherently less risky. Thank you, Mike. That's been brilliant.